0: This is fundraising radio, And today as a guest speaker, we have Alex Fedoseev, who is the CEO and founder of One World Online, who raised over $26 million. And And before we get started, I wanted to make an announcement about One World Online. Specifically, they have just gone public on Republic. I rhymed that by an accident and not intentionally. But the point is that they're offering their shares to Crow through Republic. And they're offering um, round of $107,000. And I personally have invested $100. I know it's not much, but you can check the link in the description and invest more than I did. So Alex, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on uh, One World Online. Yeah, thank you, Konstantin. And thank you for inviting me to your show.
1: I moved to California back in 1996 and worked for... Networking companies at the beginning was an era of broadband revolution. So, great time. And then, uh, since 1999, I worked pretty much all this time for startups, was uh, regionally broadband area, telecom, smart home, IoT. And started from 2010, so I switched completely to this internet services kind of combination of media, tech, and new technologies. But um, overall, yeah, my background was academic initially. I was in Moscow State University doing AI projects early days before the hype, and then since I moved to California, yeah, it was mostly interested in broadband and uh, related internet technologies.
0: Got it. So uh, when did you start One World Online?
1: Yeah. So what happened? I had three successful exits in uh, between 2006, 2010, 2011 my companies were acquired. First time after seven years uh, was acquisition of my company called Two Wire, where I was head of product. And then we sold uh, our smart home company after four years of work to Motorola Mobility, which was acquired by Google Was a double acquisition. And I was thinking about what to do next. Because when you stay in the same sector for a while, uh, it's interesting and you can make money, but it's not exciting to spend the rest of your life on the same (laughs) topic, right? And broadband IoT is interesting. There's a definitely very exciting segment, but super hard from business model perspective, and you cannot do it for more than a decade. So I was thinking about what is the next big thing where I should apply my experience and uh, entrepreneurship passion. So and I was thinking about this a lot, actually, what is the big problem that uh, would be interested to solve? And I came to realization that we consume content every day, so there's tons of information. We're reading online from various websites, applications, news feeds, and so on. But there's not enough interactivity. In other words, I can consume the information, but I don't see what is the people's opinion about it. What is the actual reaction to this information? What people think about what just happened? And I thought that might be great, actually, for people to compare themselves to others for their opinion. It probably should be great for brands to have this feedback mechanism and um, for publishers still to increase engagement. And that's essentially what is OneWorld. We combine engagement tools with advertising solutions. And um, now, last few years, we added some incentive component via blockchain and tokenization. So OneWorld Online is all about interactive experiences and making internet um, interactions better for all three parties involved, audiences, publishers, and advertisers.
0: Got it. That's pretty interesting. So you said that you had three exits, which is just amazing. Can you, uh, give us a little bit like Mm -hmm. comparison between your first experience of starting a company and your current experience of starting a company from the fundraising perspective?
1: Yeah. The first one I wasn't executive originally when I joined company called 2Y in 1999, I was one of the mid-level managers and then grew up to the head of product over years. Mm-hmm. And it took a while, so they promoted me t- in 2004 to be head of product and essentially launch different accounts. We raised a lot of money. I wasn't in fundraising position, but I was in supporting the role all the time by delivering good results, launching new accounts, building the product. It actually, it was hardware. Uh, it was a residential gateway. We became number one in America, number two in the world. AT&T was our biggest customer. So the company raised more than 200 million, but we had very uh, strong CEO and VP of engineering the folks with the strong backgrounds, the original founders of Polycom, you probably know the top video conferencing solution in the world. And before that picture tell, so both Brian Hinman and Pedro Mano, um, just super talented uh, folks from MIT that were really good on fundraising, um, along with Brad Kate and my good friend who was head of marketing. Yeah, they did a really good job to raise all this money, and then eventually we brought the company to exit. Um, but it's a bit different story. Hardware projects usually require a lot of capital. You know, We developed our own oh, basic yeah. chip, right? And then hardware, we built a, a management protocol, which um, became world standard. Together with Alcatel, we brought it to Broadway Forum and turned to what is called now TR69. So it requires a lot of capital to get all this done. Hardware, software, and, and standardization on top of it. So I wouldn't compare a software only company to that, but definitely I was watching all these activities and participating in due diligences, And, uh, yeah, it was exciting. And it was mostly of these team money from Silicon Valley, but also a bit from Europe. But the second company for home, I was very involved and, um, especially I brought Verizon, for example, as a customer, but also as an investor. So the second company. Called,
0: Can called we home. elaborate on that a little bit more? You said you brought Verizon as a customer and mm-hmm. as an investor. How do you how do you manage right. to do this? Yes,
1: yeah, here's how it happened. In 2006, Brett Caton, one of the founders of 2 Wire, invited me to his next startup called For home And by the way, you know this, I have all digits all, always in my names of companies, 2Wire, 4Home, <laughs> one <laughs> road. Yeah, so I immediately realized, okay, it starts with the digits, so it's the right place <laughs> for me. Okay. And uh, yeah, so Brett uh, and team they were at the early stage. And we only had uh, one VC from UK called Pond Ventures. They put most of the money in the company and we ran out of money in 2007, which was kind of scary. But what I did in parallel while developing the product, I uh, was talking to all teams at Verizon. Network lag, I guess. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Yes. I hear you.
0: Oh, okay. I can hear you. All right. Can we just like go back like 20 seconds? Sure.
1: Yeah. So when I started at for home, I already had relationship with most of telcos around the world from AT&T to British telecom to Telstra in Australia. And of course, um, when you go from generic broadband solution to something very specific, like smart home, I was thinking, okay, who's the best fit to bring this idea and uh, develop Something together, and Verizon was number one on my list because I knew these people very well, the product team, and I knew that they have this high interest for additional services that can be offered on top of their broadband connection. Especially if you remember, there was a FiOS, the new fiber-based uh, offering coming from Verizon, and they actually were looking for additional apps. And
0: yes. Understood. That's that's interesting. So you had some uh, you had some connections with them. By the way, uh, just a recent tool that I've discovered for those who want to get in touch with big companies like Verizon, Google, or something like that, there is a tool called hunters.io, which allows you to connect to executives at those big companies. Um, I have not tried it personally, but might be helpful for some of you who are not as experienced as Alex and who don't have as many friends. (laughs) So uh, let's move on then. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your... uh, current company, One World Online. On Crunchbase, it says that you're on uh, ICO funding right now. Can you tell a bit about that?
1: Well, ICO was in the middle of our life cycle. We had some equity fundraising before ICO and after. But of course, you remember 2017, when it became a super popular way to raise additional capital. But for us, interesting enough, it wasn't just about the capital. I really like the idea of incentives that can be run on cryptocurrency versus virtual points. Because unlike many other companies, Monmote already had a system based on virtual points. We actually built it from day one. Since 2013, we already had all of our users incentivized with virtual points and earning it through engagement, like voting, sharing, creating content. But they were just badges, right? Which didn't have any material backup. And the idea of cryptocurrency was so right on. My friend from Crypto Valley actually, who was a VP of innovation back then, he came to California in mid 2016 and really asked me to create a media solution around blockchain. So we got into this very early. And when time came for ICO, which was mid 2017, we issued our token to essentially supplement the system that already was in place. So Mm -hmm. people can redeem their virtual points into tokens, which are trading on exchanges and can be used back in our application. So it's a classic utility token, with a real uh, asset behind it. And the asset is the advertising capabilities of one world platform. So you can exchange one token for one CPM, which means 1000 ad impressions. And we did this ICO quite successfully, but also, it wasn't just classical ICO when we raised Ethereum and Bitcoin, we allowed uh, partner token swaps, which was a know-how that we pretty much invented uh cross-investing with our partners that are also part of the ecosystem and issuing their own tokens so a big part of our proceeds came from these token swaps and it worked mm-hmm. beautifully because next year a couple of these companies became very successful so the assets grew up in value before the crypto winter came up uh, but more importantly we were cross-invested with these partners so there's a definitely good grounds for cooperation and that's how we raised this yeah over 10 million total in proceeds most of them were crypto
0: that's that's great, actually. I, I love this uh, because of the partnership that's created by swap tokens. My next question would be uh, how much in total did you raise through ICO? So you said that there was a lot of uh, talking swaps, etc. Yeah. And 10. Uh, 8. How, how much? 10.8 million. Nice. And how much of that? You've then mentioned that there was a, a crypto winter when many of the companies died uh, that were operating yeah. in blockchain. How much money did you have after that crypto winter? Because many of this uh, money that you raised were in uh, tokens, right? Right.
1: I would say that out of 8 million of swaps that we've done, roughly out of this amount, two companies survived and did quite well, especially early 2018. But even second half, I was still staying strong, specifically Universa and Safi TX. There are two infrastructure plays. One Eastern European, one Swiss company. And the other six, they pretty much died. Yeah, either they didn't materialize or the token went down almost to zero. But it's pretty much, my observation is, it's pretty much like startup scene when you have only two, maybe one out of 10 surviving, but making it really well and kind of compensating for the rest, that's the same model.
0: Right, yeah, that works. That's totally understandable. And how much do you spend on this ICO campaign? So ICO for me, it's pretty much similar to a crowdfunding campaign, right? So you have to launch multiple uh, ads, etc. Uh, how much do you spend on that process? I would
1: say that actually most of the proceeds came from our institutional and accredited investors in our ecosystem, because I did try some social media tools, and probably because it was second part of twenty seventeen, it didn't work well like uh, we got nothing from Facebook or some other traditional tools, Google AdWords. Yeah. So most of it was done through our network of investors and people who already knew the company and appreciated our business. We did actually some test campaigns in the U- US and India, but mostly to develop our own tools around it, which we mm-hmm. then successfully deployed for other companies. And uh, as you know, One World itself is advertising solution. So right. that's the part that worked actually. And uh, for example, one of our big investors, since the early days it's Times Group of India. It's the biggest media holding on the planet. And they're very innovative folks. They have a US office in Silicon Valley, the investment arm. And we did a few really successful campaigns, both digital and print to raise awareness of one world. I consider this was a success. Yeah, we, we spent over a million dollars on promotions and advertising if you count everything, right? Oh. The contractors, the media placement and so on. But it, it justified itself as you can tell. But most of direct deals and most mostly accredited investors.
0: Understood. Which are, by the way, they, they, they,
1: they, in this case, they weren't investors really. They were more like uh, people buying tokens and token holders, right? Because clearly it's not an investment. It's a p- purchase an asset that have a real utility use, access to advertising platform. And everybody needs uh, access to advertising, clearly, right? Companies, right. organizations, everybody needs to advertise something, their products, their offerings. So in our case, it was more like exception because we had real value and uh, that helped a lot right yeah
0: that that's really simple. uh and uh, another question that i would really wanted to ask you is this uh i saw on your crunchbase profile that you have acquired a smaller company called flipter mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about this acquisition
1: yeah so what's interesting one world idea is not necessarily unique because many people around the world, they understand the importance of interactivity, feedback collection from people to supplement content with uh, these nice tools. And Flipter is a good example. That was a small company out of Mexico. Yeah. So she- it's a classical example when somebody developed a similar solution, interactive tools to supplement content, but in a specific region. Like in this case, it was uh, Mexico, Chile. These guys were working mostly in Latin America. And we met with the founder, and uh, he was in a very challenging situation from cash flow perspective, so everything worked out well. So we added him and his team to one world and they essentially became our regional extension, covering everything in Spanish language, Latin America and some other parts of the world. Yeah, that's something I've done in my previous life also, acquiring companies that are supplemental to our business. Even back at Wire, we quite. Company and it's a fun experience. Yeah, when you work with talented folks and you give them a chance to become part of a bigger story,
0: that's great. Uh, So, I often hear how people say um, build a startup where the money is, and some people take it very, very literally and they try to aim for an acquisition from day one. So, do you think that's a reasonable strategy? I can
1: tell you a story from my own experience. Sure. Uh, i'm not against the early, early exits it's a good thing right if uh if you're lucky you start the line why not right but of course realistically it's very very rare situation when this acquisition might happen but uh, when one road was only two weeks young back in fall of 2012 we were in downtown san jose and participated in the global mobile conference right there in downtown san jose and it was a time when Marissa Mayer was a CEO of Yahoo, and they were actively doing um, high acquisition, right? equity hires. So essentially buying companies just to get more people into Yahoo. Mm-hmm. And mobile was a big focus for them. So we were at the booth just two weeks into business, showing our first prototype. and the guy who actually was doing acquisitions for Marissa Mayer stopped by. We had a very good conversation. He didn't tell us that he's doing acquisitions, and only on the second call it was revealed. And i was literally facing the situation selling the company two weeks into operations okay and of course we didn't yeah we didn't do it and well i don't think it will be like as determined it might have happened but you know i was more interested to build our solution than become part of yahoo to be honest <laughs> and uh, that was a good call mm-hmm.
0: the more i talk to founders from san francisco the more it reminds me of this show silicon valley just so many similarities oh
1: I can tell you, some parts of my, our lives are actually m- more, like much more funny and um, much worse, and like on you know, that <laughs> side than what you see in this movie. People think it's grotesque, but it's not, right? By no means. It just, you know, stylistically it uh, could be improved, but overall they tell the truth about the life here. But there's certain things that wouldn't, you wouldn't see even in this type of shows because they're so bad that they don't want to talk about publicly what what happens to people. Like, I don't really want to mention it, but since you touched it, like I know two of the founders of companies that I was working with, they died. Uh, One was heart attack, another suicide. And it's not for everybody. Look, startup life. Yeah. People see the fun part of it, that yeah, shows, you know, hackathons, a lot of engagements, great companies, talking to Google, talking to Verizon, like you just mentioned. We have all of that, of course, no, no question, but it's all good when all good. But when things are going bad or ugly, not everybody can stand it, and it's breaking people's lives. And uh, I was really always advocating for entrepreneurship, and I'm, I'm advising so many startups here. But now I'm trying to be cautious about this and saying, guys, if you really want to be entrepreneurs and found your own startup, you really need to be sure that you're ready for the bad times too, not just good times. You have to realize it up front. And it's imminent. There's no way you can avoid it. You're absolutely going to hit really, really bad times. Every startup does. Are you ready for that? Because Silicon Valley show is kind of, one way to see it a little bit more, but the real life is
0: We've got another network lag here. And while Alex is restoring his connection, I just want to say that, yeah, this is true. This is a pretty sad but true perspective on what startup life is like. And from my own perspective, uh, the more I talk to great founders of startups, Uh, the more I see this pattern of them working over 12 hours a day. So if I talk to someone who has a great company, the chances are extremely high that they're working over 12 hours and they're just like, oh, it's fine. I I really got used to this. So yeah, uh, Alex, you're back. Uh, Thanks for this dark but realistic perspective. I really love when people touch on the darker side of the startup world because some people tend to view it in like pink glasses I guess um, and uh, just are not not ready for the real life so let's move yes. on to probably something uh, more positive Yes. Um, yes. and uh, talk about your um, first round so uh, before you you yes. started one world online you said you had three exits I believe you had uh, yes. over a decade uh, many mm-hmm. decades of experience and uh, what's the first step here for you when you were like all right it's time for me to fundraise what do you do first when you have so many connections
1: yes yes that's exactly right i had a lot of connections all the silicon valley um people and both entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and yeah that was a fun part because i, I actually a huge fan of guy kawasaki and his uh, philosophy of how a startup should be created there's a book called art of the start I literally followed it like everything that you can read in this book i did it and i talked to guy a couple of times after that and really thanked him for being such an influence and inspiration because when i was still inside of much and in google uh and the big corporations is definitely not fun and uh they pretty much degradation right if you end up in a big corporation you're gonna be degrading professionally and emotionally and uh, smart people don't stay in big corporations for a long time so Whole team that was acquired, we started thinking about what to do next, and of course, yeah, fundraising came up um, quickly, right? Because we had an idea, we started working on it, prototyping while we're still Mm -hmm. employed there, exactly how Guy Kawasaki suggested we should do it. uh, Because you develop your new idea when you're still in a previous company, and uh, we started with friends and family. And it was also a good coincidence, one of my good friends, actually, a head of a huge software firm that developing legal software, um, you know their name, but I uh, just don't want to mention it here. It's very popular in Eastern Europe. He was mm-hmm. visiting California and um, I was telling him and his kids about what I'm doing next in my career, and he got extremely interested and in said, oh, can I invest in you? And I wasn't really in fundraising mode at this moment. But when somebody is telling you, would you take my money?
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, I'm a responsible person. So I really want to make sure that I will deliver back on this investment uh, And we met second time, and I put together a presentation explaining our strategy. And then, yeah, we made the first deal even before I officially start fundraising, which was about 200k. And obviously, at the early stage, that's a good amount of money. Because my team was going just on stock options. For the first 18 months, we decided not to pay ourselves any cash compensation and just have a stock for work type of model, which was another know-how, which worked beautifully. So in 18 months, we created a prototype and we were ready to go and start the operations and we had 200k in the bank. And after that um, was the late 2012 when I went after friends and family. And I was lucky second time because many of them actually waited for me to start my own company, you know, in Silicon Valley, everybody knows everything about others. Right. And they knew yeah. I had uh, some really good exits and became like high ranked uh, In conversion division of motorola so when i said i'm starting my own company people brought the first um, half a million and by late 2013 we raised 1.5 million that was our first round
0: i bet my listeners are super duper extra jealous right now because like raining like 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 that (laughs) 1.5 million on the first round that's that's really impressive so uh let's move back a little bit to people who have os connections And what would be your advice for people who are just starting their company, uh, but have couple, but not, not much connections with money. What would be your advice? Oh, first of all, I'm very, very much for pro
1: entrepreneurship and advise many companies and help them to raise money in all different shapes and forms. Um, Yeah, you don't need that much amount actually. Remember for this first 18 months, we were going no money, just developing it well employed by our current companies. And we put about fifty K ourselves, the the founding team. So this amount actually will keep you alive for some time if you can keep developing based on your previous proceeds or some you know savings. There are many different ways how we can start it. But even with a five digit capital, you can get pretty far by just developing prototype and have something to show. I have many companies in my ecosystem, some are very early stage, like studio style, when they have an idea, a couple of founders very little cash. I think there are different strategies and we can go through them quickly, depending on what you're doing, right? What is your application or your product? If it's hardware or software is completely different.
0: Let's do Uh, software software.
1: as it's common. Then the next big split is B2B versus B2C, right? Absolutely different strategies. B2B much easier because there are many boutique um, studios and like early stage funds that love the idea of small investment in exchange for big percentage of the company. I'm part of one of these uh, boutiques actually called Hive in Palo Alto. They're doing just that. And I always help them with a the good company, some resources. And yeah, even on a small amount of money, you can get funded for six months, or maybe more, just to develop your first demo. And then they usually bring strategic uh, partner or strategic investor. Uh, I love this model. I think it's very smart, because you know who you're gonna sell to, right after your product is ready for, for the market. It's exactly what I did for the at and Verizon. When you bring your potential customer early as a strategic investor and you already have a clear path about what you're going to do about them. The second option, of course, if you don't go after a specific uh, customer or market and you just develop an in internal application that you can monetize later, but you know how to make it viral and get it going. I'll give you one example. The company I just talked to, they developed uh, banking for teenagers. That's a big lack on the market. So it doesn't matter who is your strategic partner. It's a, a very well-known pain point. And if somebody is going to address it, there's a very good chance of success, even without strategics. You can just start on your own right, and build momentum through smart advertising and uh, introductions and so on. There are other ways to yeah, raise money quickly. Uh, for example, just get um, a connection to the right people in the investment world. And it's changing rapidly, as you know. Right. So these are not as important as it used to be. I really like angel groups because they're much more flexible. And if you present in front of them, you usually have a higher chance to get somebody who's interested. Like I'll give Mm you an example from one world story at the early stage when I presented to Kiretsu Forum, which is one of the biggest investment angel communities in America. um, Maybe my story wasn't mature enough and maybe I didn't deliver it well. So like hundred people in the room, uh, they didn't really express interest right away. It's like 99 out of 100, maybe didn't fully understand what I'm doing because I'm a traditional old school investors. And I was a bit disappointed in driving back to the office and, and I got a call. And it was the one guy, just one person inside of this whole group that called me and said, you know what, there's something interesting What what you're telling. Can we meet for lunch with me and my son? And I met him and it turned out to be Matthew Merrill, the author of Fifth Era, bestseller on Amazon, one of the most prominent and most successful angel investors in the Bay Area. He lives in San Francisco. He has a long story of successful exits. Amazing person. And he became an world investor. So I get one out of 100 success in this angel community, but it was the best one. So that's not yeah. a strategy. If you, Yeah, go to Angels and yeah, try to go wide. Actually, don't be shy. Kind of to follow these forums. We have plenty of them in Silicon Valley. There are many in New York, many in Northwest, Seattle area. If people want to build this connection, you have to go. You have to tell your story. And soon later, somebody will get interested. And finally, to complete the list of potential obvious strategies for the stage, I think uh, uh, what used to be ICO, but now it's the IO, STO, just token issues. It's still a great model. I absolutely believe in it. And I think that it might be even a good thing. That the first wave already passed and uh, we learned the lesson, right? Now, companies doing tokenization are usually folks that have a product, solid team. Uh, there's no much fraud going on. I think the quality of companies is much higher. And issuing tokens and selling them uh, as a security token, let's say your shares or some ABT asset back tokens, or utility tokens with a pre sale, uh, it's absolutely a viable option. But they need to have a real application for that. So, many options to choose from. For- That's
0: true. And let's move a little bit backwards to the very beginning of this of your response you said that you were working 18 months with no pay for one world right but Mm -hmm. then you said that you were working for uh, uh, a bigger corporation uh, that was paying you a salary right
1: yeah so
0: compensation with the stock and stock options
1: is very typical for startups so i absolutely believe that that should be a way to go at the early stage
0: but you were were part-time right
1: Yes, correct. Everybody was part-time. Got and it. then after we finished this 18 months, the three of us, the first three, we quit Motorola and uh, went on like full-time to one road. So it was a multi-stage process.
0: Understood. So uh, you've said multiple times that big corporations are basically degrading people, and I totally agree on that big corporations are horrible. Uh, even though I've never worsened them. <laughs> hmm. But uh, would you recommend young founders who are just thinking to start their journey in a startup world, but don't really have any like pass or uh, money or anything like that? Would you recommend them to go into larger corporations or rather into small startups? No,
1: I would never. I would definitely recommend them to avoid big corporations by all the means, unless they need legal status, like get to walk visa and then convert to like green card or something like this, then it's justifiable. It's okay to, to go the, down this path, but that's not really needed. Most of entrepreneurs can get all visa nowadays. And I absolutely recommend only go to startups. If you need to get connections to big corporations, there are other ways to do it, right? You don't want to be deployed by them. You don't want to lose the precious years of your life, like doing nonsense, inside sure. of like Google and Facebook and such, which, you know, there's no value there. Uh, but when you're in startup, you're doing real work, you like really have your options open, right? You're involved in everything from product to business to build the partnerships. You become a really valuable human, not just the uh, professional, right? Because you have to interact with right. so many people. it's enjoyable life. I mean, that's a full life, which is definitely motivating. But to get to big corporations, uh, a couple of ways to do it. You can join some incubator, which already has connections to big brands. It could be plug and play in Sunnyvale or launchpad, the Google program, I'm mentoring both. So I'm very involved in these both programs still mentioned for Google and for plug and play. And that's how we can meet all the brands in the world you wish through these events, mentoring sessions and so on. Without being an employee of this corporate, you can just meet the right people and talk about your very solution, not work for them on their solutions, but offer your solution and get them involved in one or another capacity. Investor would be ideal, but even like a customer for your product or just some strategic partnership. The only thing i really w- want to warn people um i came from telecom world right and there are three rules of engagements there are uh, patience patience and patience like if you want to kill <laughs> an elephant you have to hunt for a long time Verizon took me two years to go from first uh, discussion to actually get a paid contract with money we're doing integrations demos i was standing at Verizon booth at ces in las vegas and so on you have to go through a lot of activities and a lot of uh, development and business support before you get there. So that's something. First conversation, second conversation means nothing. People should be prepared for long journey with a lot of challenges, but if they're really dedicated and determined, then absolutely materialize. So big corporations are much more accessible now than 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago. So it's all possible.
0: That's true. And this is a really positive note to wrap our, our podcast on. Um, is there anything? uh one advice you would give to people who are listening to this right now and we will wrap it up
1: i still want to encourage people to be entrepreneurs but be careful when they enter this path because they should be prepared and um, there's still huge opportunities out there i really believe in web 3.0 i think uh, decentralization and uh, the whole new internet of new principles is so big that very few people understand the real scale of it. It's complete change, not just faster and bigger and better, but also changing relationships between people, governments and corporations. I really encourage people to go down this path because there will be tremendous opportunities. We'll see new Google, new Facebook, new Amazon, new everybody in the space in the next decade. And that's where mm, time of opportunities really encourage people to go there.
0: That's even more positive note to finish our podcast on. All right thanks a lot alex for coming up today for sharing your experience for telling us your journey and have a great weekend yeah i really appreciate it constantin thanks for having me thanks bye you really mm-hmm. thought it's the end of the episode nope not yet in these uncertain times when a weird virus is spinning out of control and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money and not to lose it all i have an answer invest in human capital I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called Human IPO, so shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour, and when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates. But please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper. And your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode. And thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.